Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll talk to the curator behind a new exhibit that looks back at Chicago's history of great department stores. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review a new play that explores the importance of truth and storytelling. Later in the show, I'll take you to a Chicago cafe slash bookstore that's dedicated to the art of theater. And I'll catch up with the author of a book all about HBO's history. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. Chicago, Chicago, that title in town. This weekend unofficially kicked off the holiday shopping season. While many local malls and big box stores still had full parking lots, a growing number of Americans are doing their shopping online. An estimated 87.2 million Americans shopped online on Black Friday last year, and about 33% of consumers plan to shop online exclusively this holiday season. Younger generations will have vastly different memories of what it's like shopping this time of year. If you're over a certain age, and you grew up in the Chicago area, your memories might involve Marshall Fields, Carson Perry Scott, Montgomery Ward, and Sears. Those retailers that sold virtually everything were all based in Chicago, and as all of you know, are no longer around. The happy memories created at those stores and others are being celebrated in a new exhibit at the Elmhurst History Museum. Titled Lost Chicagoland Department Stores, the exhibit puts a nostalgia-tinged spotlight on some of the area's once most popular department stores. In addition to looking back at the Big Four, the exhibit, which features over 120 artifacts, also highlights some of the medium to smaller sized department stores that served local communities. I recently visited the Elmhurst History Museum to check out the exhibit and to talk to curator Sarah Cox about the genesis of lost Chicagoland department stores. We worked with author and historian Leslie Goddard on this one. We'd worked with her previously on the past um, on our exhibition, Sweet Home Chicago. She wrote a book. So this one, she came out with a book in 2022 called Lost Chicago Department Stores. And we just thought this was another great opportunity to partner with her again on a topic that really hadn't been explored yet at a history museum. So we just thought this was great timing as well right before Christmas. The origins of many of Chicago's most well-known retailers can be traced to State Street, with the starting point coming after the Great Chicago Fire. It really started after 1871, the Chicago Fire. Chicago became a real hotspot, not only for its location next to Lake Michigan, but also the fact that it was a huge train hub uh, and a lot of business came through here. So it was very easy for a lot of these department stores to get goods, not only from other states, but also from other countries. So that made it really um, important when they were doing business. One of the big things that really made department stores very popular popular here was right after the fire, Potter Palmer bought up a large piece of real estate on State Street um, because the shopping district used to be Lake Street. And it was really after the fire that he bought up this property and he began selling it to people who used to own dry goods stores, much like Carson Perry Scott. He sold his own dry goods store to Marshall Field and Levi Leader. And that's what kind of kicked off the beginning of State Street being the shopping district because they had eight department stores that started there. The exhibit includes a map of State Street that illuminates just how robust the shopping district there was. That map uh, is pretty current around like... 1880 until like 1930. There are some locations that didn't open up until much later. So places like Sears and Montgomery Wards, they started off as warehouses. Um, They were mail order business only, and it wasn't until the turn of the century that they started to open a storefront on State Street. And some of these other businesses, um, like Weebolt, bought Mandel Brothers, which was on State Street, and took over their business. So they didn't come to State Street till much later. 
It's like such an interesting topic because there's going to be like this generation gap. So I'll probably like age myself because I grew up with uh, Sears, Montgomery Ward, Carson's and Marshall Fields at the malls I used to go to. And now none of them exist. Does the exhibit go into a little bit of like the rise and fall? It does. Um, I mean, the real height of department stores begins uh, in the late 1800s and really goes through until about the 80s. Um, so, uh, and it's just constant popularity because they were always changing. They were always doing new marketing schemes, offering new ways to have deals, sales, attracting customers, um, but still staying true to their original brand. So we explore in the end that, you know, unfortunately, most of these stores aren't around today, and that is just because shopping habits changed. Online shopping changed a lot of how we shop, um, and now today it's online shopping and shopping small, shopping local. So it does explore some of the changes that we make in our shopping behavior. Unfortunately, we can't shop at Marshall Fields anymore, but if you walk into the Macy's on State Street, you can still see some of the remnants that gave that Marshall Fields flagship store such a sense of grandeur. What a lot of these stores did, especially places like Marshall Field and Company and Carson Peary Scott, is not only the experience you had there was kind of luxurious, but they tried to hire the best of the best. So the building we see today on State Street that was Marshall Field was built by Daniel Burnham. And then the Carson Peary Scott store was built by Louis Sullivan. So those were kind of the, you know, top of the pops in terms of architects here in Chicago. Famously in Marshall Field, there's also the Tiffany ceiling, which still exists today, uh, which is still beautiful. But any artistry, um, whether it was people who were working on the windows um, or any of the mannequins, they used to all be handmade and done by artisans here in Chicago. So that kind of added to the glamour of going to these stores. Um, um, and there's still evidence today of these stores. You'll see plaques for the different stores, or you'll see their insignia built into the building. So there's still evidence that they're there. More evidence in the uh, Macy's, the former Carson Perry Scott is now a Target. So like the, the outside, beautiful. The inside, unrecognizable. Any hopes for what visitors take away? Um, I mean, one of the big things was, of course, the nostalgia factor. Um, when we were talking about it as a staff here, you know, we talked about becoming storytellers and like you said this younger generation department stores isn't a word that they're familiar with it's sharing those stories sharing those memories um whether it was with family or friends and you know i think i just enjoy putting a smile on people's face especially now and with the holidays coming up This holiday season, let everyone on your gift list open a Knurps automatic folding umbrella. It opens fast, closes easily. Priced at just $21, you'll find a variety of colors to choose from. So for a gift that's sure to be appreciated, choose Knurps automatic folding umbrellas. Marshall and $21 for an umbrella? That seems kind of steep for the early 80s. That was a clip from a Marshall Fields commercial from 1980. We heard from Sarah Cox. She's the curator of exhibits at the Elmer's History Museum. Lost Chicagoland department stores will be on display through January 28th. You can find more info at elmhursthistory.org. Old-fashioned Christmas An old-fashioned Christmas Family faces Wide open space. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the arts section on Sunday mornings right here on WDCB, thank you. If you listen online, thank you as well. You can find past episodes on the show's website, theartsection.org. Also, individual features are available there on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the stories you hear on the show. I'll be posting something on the Elmhurst History Museum exhibit there in the uh, next day or so, so you can check out some of the, the pictures of the exhibit. Check out theartsection.org, and if you have a comment or question for me, please feel free to reach out. Email me at gzydek at wdcb.org, or find me on Instagram or X, formerly known as Twitter, with the handle at onairgary.
And you are listening to the arts section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm joined remotely by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, good Gary. Good to you. Hope you both had a good Thanksgiving. I had a journalism professor that used to sarcastically say, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Obviously, the truth is what's most important when you're a journalist. I like to read fiction recreationally as much as the next radio host, but I have a deep appreciation for nonfiction storytelling, whether it's a documentary or an article in my local newspaper. And for me, it's pretty simple if it's presented as news or journalism, I have an expectation of truth. The facts have to be there. Timeline Theater Company's new production, The Lifespan of Fact, dives into the issue of truth and how it's presented. There are some blurry lines in this particular story, which is based on a book that was written about a real situation that involves fact-checking an essay about a suicide in Las Vegas. That setup was a little convoluted. I'll let the critics explain it better. Uh, And Jonathan, why don't we we start with you? What should we know about uh, the lifespan of a fact? Okay, well, the first thing I'm going to say that people should know is that this is a dynamite show, and they should do themselves a favor. Listeners out there, do yourself a favor. Book tickets for this show while you can, because I expect it's going to, uh, it's going to sell out. It's going to get terrific word of mouth. It already is. It's a fast-moving, 90-minute, fact-based, dark comedy with plenty of meat on its bones, and for me, wonderful acting and directing. Now... To get to your point, Gary, when I say that the lifespan of a fact is based on fact, that doesn't mean it's a documentary or a history play or even true, because the play tells us, if it tells us anything, that while all facts are true, not all truths are facts. There are spiritual truths, emotional truths, poetic truths, which have nothing whatsoever to do with 2 plus 2 equals 4, or the sun is hot, or even, I think, therefore, I am. Uh, So what do we have here? Well, we have uh, a situation uh, initially set in 2003, in which a well-established writer named, a real real person, uh, John Degada, writes a story about the Las Vegas suicide of a 16-year-old boy the year before, as you have already said, uh, Gary. Degada insisted he was writing an essay, not an article, nor a news story, nor even journalism, but a work of art. And then an eager, astute young fact-checker, who was assigned by Degada's editor, tears the piece to shreds with minuscule factual inaccuracies. Did the boy who jumped from the top of an observation tower, did he fall for eight seconds or nine seconds? Were the bricks at the base of the tower red or brown? Did a new Las Vegas law, which is mentioned just in passing in the essay, affect 29 Vegas strip clubs or 31 or 34? Aware of differing sources of information, the writer, Degada, said he made the choices which were best for what he was writing, while the fact-checker insists that they did not meet accepted journalistic standards. And... uh, Carrie, I'm going to throw it to you. Yeah, I actually did see this play in its New York premiere about five years ago. Oh. Um, it, and there's, it's interesting because we should also be clear with our listeners, the lifespan of a fact, yes, it is based on a book that Degada and Jim Singles, the, the fact checker, wrote, sort of laying out their years-long back and forth. But they've taken a great deal of liberties with it as a play. For instance, the idea that the fact checker actually jumps on a plane and goes to Degada's house in Las Vegas... This did not, in fact, happen, but it obviously makes for the greater dramatic storytelling itself, having them sit at, you know, laptops across the stage from each other, banging away and, you know, projecting the notes on the screen would probably lose some dramatic appeal over time. So I think that's one thing to be clear about. They're certainly, I don't think, you know, hiding anything from us about this. I think the playwrights have been pretty clear that they themselves are inspired to use their own spin on, <laughs> their own spin on this story based on the questions raised by the original book, and indeed by the article. I believe it was originally going to be at Harper's, and then it ended up at The Believer. The magazine that we see here with the editor, uh, the fictional Emily Penrose, uh, who's sort of refereeing these two men, looks very much like Harper's, even the the back issues, you know, the framed covers on her wall. 
have a very Harper's feel to me in this production. So yes, you're going into this play knowing that you're going to be looking at the questions of how do you best tell a story. Um, and what I like about this play, and what you've already, I think, alluded to, Jonathan, is that it starts, yes, with the minutiae. Does it matter if there were 29 strip clubs or 31 strip clubs? Indeed, does it really matter if the young man who jumped to his death took eight seconds to hit the ground or nine seconds? Yeah, those seem like to be, to me, to be fairly unimportant in the grand scheme. But then we get into other things that Degata took liberties with, most notably, he has what he called a countdown in the essay of all the other deaths that had happened in Las Vegas, and they follow kind of a declining numerical pattern so that we have, uh, you know, so many heart attacks, so many gunshot wounds. And then at the end, he says, one death by hanging. Well, um, it turns out that the, when Fingal checks the coroner's report, uh, reports that day, that was, there was not a death from hanging. There was, in fact, another death by jumping. A young woman had jumped to her death the same day as the young man. But in the play, and I believe this happened as well in the book, uh, you know, in the in in fact, Degada just said, "Well, I wanted Levi's death to be the only jump, the only one by jumping." It messes with the countdown. Now that seems fairly callous because now you're getting into the details of someone else's life, right? And I think that's a really smart point in the play. I hope I'm not giving too much away, but I mean, it's that sort of where the play clicks over into. Okay, it's funny to talk about this kind of nerdy fact checker who's got his spreadsheet and he's very obsessed with the minutiae. But oh wait, these are real people we're talking about. And that's when it sort of, you know, puts us also in the zone of, okay, we're sitting in a play that's based in some ways about real people and now we're being asked to com- confront what's true, what isn't, what hits us most emotionally, why do we respond to certain details, true or not? over others. And I think that's really, really, really the smart thing about this play. I agree with you, Jonathan. It's not only a, you know, a really you know, fun and interesting play, but I also think it's a very good production in Michelle Moe's uh, staging for Timeline. Let's take a moment here and listen to a clip from the play. In this scene, the uh, writer John is getting upset after the intern fact-checker Jim has raised some questions about the accuracy of some of the things in his essay. So long. Oh, and that chicken? What? Yeah, never mind. What about the chicken? The 35-minute tic-tac-toe game? You say the woman who beat the chicken was from Mississippi, but by that time, she'd been a Las Vegas resident for years. I called her. You did what? I found the original article and I looked her up. I talked to her. And on whose authority? Emily Penrose. She told me to check things out, so I'm checking them out. Jesus. The woman has to be from a place other than Las Vegas to underscore the transient nature of the city. Almost everyone here is from someplace else. And that game didn't happen until August, a month after Levi Presley died, not the same day like you said. He was as much a part of the atmosphere of that summer as Levi falling from the top of the casino. Then isn't that how it should be framed? Readers care about how things play out on a deeper level. They, they care about the meaning behind the confluence of the events. But events didn't conflue the way you said. Conflu is not a word. If you claim an event happened, readers need to trust it happened. This piece rests on the weight of a lot of important details. It's problematic of you to wash your hands of their accuracy. All right, well, things don't rest on weights. Weights rest on things, and I'm not washing my hands of anything. I'm saying there's a world of facts to choose from. The wrong facts get in the way of the story. That was PJ Powers as John and Alex Benito Rodriguez as Jim in the scene from Timeline Theater's new play, The Lifespan of a Fact. Jonathan? Uh, So what you have, and I think we're in agreement here, we have a writer who's aiming to convey a truth of some kind, not necessarily the factual truth. He's looking to convey an an ethos, if you will, about Las Vegas, something beyond Mm -hmm. mere facts. And you have an antagonist who cannot see the forest for the trees. Some might say the young fact-checker is no imagination or certainly no tolerance for poetic license. And as you pointed out, eight seconds or nine seconds, red bricks or brown bricks, the boy was just as dead. Uh, whether she hung herself or jumped off of another tower, the other suicide was just as dead, right? So, all right, this may not sound like promising material 
for an engaging <laughs> and also really entertaining show, but it most assuredly is. Uh, as the editor, the one fictional character in the mix, plays the referee between the young, eager beaver fact-checker and the older writer, and she must ultimately decide. Okay? So... As directed by Michelle Moe, as you've already cited, the three actors, I think, are astounding. Alex Benito Rodriguez is all bright-eyed and ferret-like, <laughs> obsessive as Jim Fingal, the fact-checker. P.J. Powers is the patient, long-suffering, slow-burn John Dagata, also just a touch arrogant, just arrogant enough Julie Hart is the forceful, sharp-edged editor who must set a value on factual truth versus interpretive truth, uh, as really all of us do every day. Look at what gets reported as politics, what is real, what isn't. Anyway, all three of the performers are really just lovely. These are assured performances. And I also want to say that Juliet Hart is notably well-dressed by costume <laughs> designer Cortina, Hil Cortina Hilco uh, in outfits which are casual but always stylish and in lovely light colors. And I think there's a hint there, too. I mean, she represents what we would call legacy media, and there are discussions about that. You know, media of all kinds. Yes, the office is very sleek, her clothes are very nice, but the industry is hanging on by its fingernails. And there's an under, you know, there's this undertow of dread about, you know, we have to be, you know, sexy, we have to attract eyeballs, we have to attract readers, we would love to get major awards. Yet at the same time, we live in a litigious society. And going back to the young woman who died, uh, the character of Fingal raises the point, well, what if her family comes after us? What if they say, wait a minute, why are you using her story to bolster this? You know, and, and what about the negative pushback from that? Because we, as we all know, we live in a society now where there is immediate pushback. There is immediate outrage. <laughs> there is I, immediate I promulgation of things. And I think yes. that's kind of in the background of this story in an interesting well, I, way to me. I, I believe the word, the term is we live in a litigious society. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I think that that's part of what is going on here, too, is that we see Penrose's characters literally kind of on the knife's edge between, like, I want to have this big piece, but I don't want to do it at the cost of possibly getting a major lawsuit against my publication. Yeah. Yet yeah. I also know that this is a great story, and I would love to have this. And, you know, it's very interesting. You talk about him describing it as an essay, and it's sort of and we, we've seen other cases of this. The one that comes to mind, and maybe this is familiar for radio listeners, was Mike Daisy, the solo storyteller, who got in trouble some years ago for a piece he did about the Foxconn factories, where so many of our cell phones and other electronic devices are made in China. I believe it was an NPR business reporter who was listening to it and realized, no, some of the things he's saying don't jibe with what I know personally. And that, that became a big thing of several years ago of, is this is the story of what Mike Daisy is telling, which is that the conditions in those factories are horrible, which is indisputable, <laughs> is that more important than the details he got wrong? And this is the point that I think Fingal's character makes is sometimes if you get the details wrong, people will hit on that to discredit and discount everything else you're saying, even if the larger truth is true. Yeah. So, you know, those are this is pretty nuanced stuff, and I agree with you, Jonathan. They make it fast maybe occasionally a little facile, but I found myself very much entertained and along for the ride on this. And I will Absolutely. say, I think even though it was a great star-studded cast when I saw it in New York, including Daniel Radcliffe, Bobby Cannavale, Cherry Jones, though they ain't slouches, I have to say, I think, as I often do, the intimacy of seeing it in a smaller Chicago theater made me hook into this a little bit more. Or maybe it was just coming to material a second time and picking up things that I didn't necessarily the first time. Or third possibility, having lived through so much of truthiness and alternative facts and fake news, um, there was just much more catnip <laughs> presented in the story this time around. Well, you know, the, 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 the writer cites, uh, who has, uh, as, he, as he says, proclaims uh, advanced degrees in, in Greek and, and Roman literature mm -hmm. and languages, uh, speaks them. And he cites, you know, great writers from Herodotus and Cicero onwards who have, who have interpreted broadly, uh, you know, factual material. And it made me think of, uh, maybe I'm dating myself, the, uh, the n numerous 
articles, screeds, rants written in the name of journalism by Hunter Thompson uh, of, of, of memory. Fear and loathing in Las Vegas being among them. Or Tom Wolfe's electric Kool-Aid acid test. Uh, even Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. To what degree do these longer right. works, larger works, um, to what degree does this play and its situation echo those works? Well, that's a long discussion beyond what we have time for. Gary has tolerance for us to engage in. It's true. I mean, I I saw David uh, Sedaris uh, several years ago. It was right after the James Fry controversy, you know, A Million Little Pieces, that he presented as a memoir, and people go, no, this is, it turns out he wanted to write it as a novel and was told, hey, you know, drug addiction memoirs are what are really selling right now. So he sort of, you know, rejiggered it and pretended that this was all true. And uh, at the end of Sedaris's presentation, there was a Q&A, and somebody asked him about fact-checking. And he said, you know, the thing is, sometimes, the, as you say, the picking you in details, and I was thinking about this watching the show, he said, I'll have a fact-checker from the New Yorker call me and say, you wrote that you have a... Wa- that the, the grandfather clock in your father's, you know, your parents' living room was walnut. I just called him, and he said it was cherry wood. I mean, you know, who cares? Yeah. You know? No. Um, but so that's the funny side of it. And again, I think what uh, Lifespan of a Fact does well is balance that kind of eye-rolling, oh, my God, are you really going to get so head up over this petty detail? And then sort of successfully walking us to the point where we think, but wait, some of these facts do matter. You know, and, and sometimes you can't just say, oh, it's for the sake of a better story. When there are other when when it's other people's lives um, no. and their history yeah. involved, I mean, if, you know, if it were us, we'd want to know that the truth of our lives is being presented. Who gets yeah. to decide that? Bottom line here, Carrie, you and I both found this a very exciting and engaging piece of theater, and I think it's uh, uh, we both recommend it. And I would also say, thank goodness, Carrie, that you and I only are theater critics who don't need to worry about the <laughs> truth. Mm. Timeline Theaters, The Lifespan of a Fact, continues through December 23rd. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Oh, you're, you're welcome, welcome. Carrie. I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. A bookstore slash cafe on the north side of Chicago is hoping to draw artists from the city's robust theater community and people who just like good coffee. The understudy opened its doors at the corner of Clark and Gregory earlier this year, and it sits along a popular stretch of the Andersonville neighborhood where there's no shortage of places to meet a friend for coffee. But unlike anywhere on the block or the entire city of Chicago, the understudy is also a theater-focused bookstore. Its shelves are filled with published plays and a variety of books all connected to the art of theater. I visited the understudy to catch up with the co-owners of the establishment, Adam Todd Crawford and Danny Fender. The place was packed on a weekday afternoon and buzzing with energy. We ended up retreating to a back office for our conversation. Chicago was once home to two theater bookstores, but had been without one for over 20 years. That void was part of the inspiration that led Crawford and Fender, who are both working theater artists, down this path. We started thinking about this in earnest during the pandemic. This is Adam Crawford. And we both had other jobs outside of theater by necessity because there was nothing happening in the theater world. And so we started to think about, okay, if and when this is over, how do we want to be part of the Chicago theater community? Because this is, we both went to school here in Chicago at DePaul, and um, that's where we met. Danny's a stage manager, and I'm an actor and a director. And yeah, we just started to really realize what it was we actually missed about being in Chicago theater. And much of that was the people and the community and that sense of curiosity and collaboration. And so we started to think about how can we create a place that fosters all of those things within our community. And then it came from a very practical need, which is that we have not had a theater bookstore here in Chicago in about 25 years. And uh, I really missed that when I was a student and I was looking for new monologues or new scene work. I decided really early on that I was not going to play anyone who wasn't gay if I didn't have to. And that made it very challenging for me to find material because there wasn't anywhere I could go and sit on the floor and pull down books and look through them. And so we really, that's where the dream started, is uh, trying to create that resource for the Chicago theater community. 
And thinking about this idea of community, for me and Adam, for me and my work during my work as a stage manager, what I love about that role is I get to work with so many different types of creative minds. I get to work with so many different types of personalities. And that's why I love stage managing. I love the people and I love the community that comes along with it. And the understudy feels like an extension of that. And I think what's been really lovely as we've been building out this space is to discover the other aspect of our store, which is the Chicago coffee community and the different intersections that come between those two communities we have found to be very exciting. It's two very different types of creative communities, but there is a lot of overlap. And it's been lovely to discover that as we've been doing the store. Right. I mean, we're we're storytellers, so we think about all the time the story that we're telling when you enter the understudy. And for us, for me, that story is about all the hard work it takes to make beautiful things happen. Crawford and Fender knew pretty early on in the process they wanted there to be a coffee component to the business. Of course, we live in a city with about 200 theaters and a lot of very, very enthusiastic theater fans and people who work in theater. But still, a a bookshop alone is sort of a challenging business to keep afloat. And then making it even more niche, selling only plays, we thought, how can we help this support itself? And so that was where the initial idea for the coffee shop began. And Danny and I really were not coffee people at the beginning of this process. But because we're both very nerdy and we're both committed to doing things right, we have gotten really, really passionate about specialty coffee as we've come along with this idea. And so what we sort of started with, not I won't say begrudgingly, but uh, with less passion, uh, has become equally passionate. I like to say it's not that we're 50% bookstore and 50% coffee shop. We are 100% bookstore and 100% coffee shop. And I think it's a natural pairing too. I mean, coffee uh, shops and cafes are natural gathering spaces. They're third spaces for a lot of folks, whether you're meeting up with a friend or working from home. Um, it gets gets people out of the house, gives them a place to go. And I think there's something really special about getting to be a part of people's routines. Um, Andersonville is an amazing neighborhood and there's a, a lot of focus uh, and support on small businesses. And we're very proud to support uh, local businesses here at The Understudy. We have Metric Coffee uh, that supplies our coffee. We have Spirit Tea, the Coffee and Tea Exchange, Ethereal Confections. We have mugs designed by Manual Design. Um, Creighton Berman is that artist. We have a mural that was painted by a local artist, Joe Craft. And it's just very important to us, that community aspect. And, you know, as I was saying before, the intersection between those different creative communities really come into play in the store, I believe. As far as the bookshop concept there were a couple theater bookstores in chicago in the 80s and 90s but none for the last 20 25 years and this is just your opinion but why do you think this hasn't been tried in so long it is an extremely niche thing to do because there's just not a lot of information out there about how to make this happen a lot of the publishers for plays are not invested in putting their books out there in bookstores because they make their money from licensing or their academic presses and that's just not really their bag is uh, making their money selling through retail and so we had to sort of do it from scratch and it was a real challenge. I think that that was a really really big barrier to that is just how could you possibly start doing this? We figured out how but I I think that's why. Well, and you also think about, you know, the the fear or the competition of something like Amazon, where, you know, there's that convenience aspect of, you know, why go to a space when, you know, you could have it delivered into your door within like two days. And then our answer to that would be is that you have a level of curation and community interaction that you can't get online. You know, you come into our space, you want a recommendation for a play and we can have a conversation um, and there's that level of community uh, and intentionality and curation that you can't get anywhere else or can't get online. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the Arts Section. I'm talking with Danny Fender and Adam Crawford, the co-owners of the new theater bookstore slash coffee shop, The Understudy. After initially announcing their plans in the spring of 2022, it took a year for The Understudy to officially open its doors in March of this year, but it's quickly become a destination for the theater community and residents of the Andersonville neighborhood. 
it's a very special experience to see the store open now because it was an idea in our heads for a very long time. And, and uh, now to have it open, I get to see the reality of people coming here and gathering and celebrating creative community here in the space. I mean, I constantly see people come in and actors or people who have worked on shows together. I eavesdrop on people sitting with their editors and editing manuscripts. I walk past people who are on Actors Access and looking at auditions or people who are mouthing their lines to themselves and rehearsing. So it already is this incredible creative collaborative space that what I love about it is that we don't have to explain that idea to people. People walk into the understudy and they understand what they're invited to do here. Mm -hmm. And that sense of community has been really, really wonderful. Obviously, everyone's welcome here to, to get a cup of coffee or to, to pick up a book, but you're hoping that theater artists engage with the space. I think what's been exciting is that we have folks who wander into the space, maybe who live here in the neighborhood, uh, who say, oh, you know, I'm not a theater person at all, but I love being in here because I love the environment and I love the vibe of the space. Um, and I, for me, that's really important because I want this to be a space where maybe if you've left theater um, or, you know, maybe you studied theater in college and haven't come back to it for quite some time, that this is a place where you can rediscover it or, you know, have that curiosity ignited by the people that you meet here or by the books that you see on our shelves. Um, and I love seeing, you know, those different types of folks in the space. The level of support that we've received from the community and from our neighbors is beyond what we could have ever imagined. I mean, everyone has just shown, shown us so much love and support um, for what we're doing, and it has just meant the world to us. Absolutely, and I really, I want to emphasize that we're not saying that to be coy or to be overly flattering because we're very, we have been very thoughtful and very intentional about trying to envision what this is going to be like and how we can make it work. And we had no idea about the level of support we were going to have. I mean, I will never forget the feeling of opening the door on opening day and watching the crowd flow in and keep coming and keep coming and keep coming every time I thought that I could <laughs> let go of the door because there were not any more people coming in, they kept coming. And that's been our experience since that day. It's the Andersonville community showing up for us, the theater community showing up for us, and that level of support is just unbelievable. And also, we've become a destination for folks who are uh, visiting out of town as well. We've had so many people saying, oh, I'm in from Atlanta. I'm in from Louisville, Kentucky. And I drove you know, in from Kenosha. I, I drove in from Kenosha. And my friends told me that I had to come here. Um, and I, I think that's something that I didn't think about as well is that, you know, Chicago is a city that has a like thriving like tourism scene and, you know, that we get to be a part of that, especially for folks who are visiting Chicago and engaging with the theater community and the art scene that exists here. Is there any type of thought that maybe people gather here like before a show or that might come organically? Yeah, I mean, I think it is sort of already happening. People will tell me sometimes in the evenings before, you know, they're dressed up and they say, I'm come, I'm stopping here before I go to a show at, you know, Steep or the Neo Futurists or somewhere around here. And uh, I think that is a great extension of the fact that we are in a neighborhood that has a lot of theaters in it already. Uh, and also we have brand new neighbors next door, Bramble Theater Company, who are opening a 100 seat theater and a 50 seat black box just about three doors away. So we're very excited to be neighbors with them. They're wonderful people and their space is going to be just gorgeous. So I'm very happy to be able to be the lobby for them. Shout out to the Bramble Arts Loft. <laughs> In addition to being a space for the community, it's also going to be a valuable resource for theater artists looking for specific texts. It's one of my personal sort of soapboxes too that I want to give theater as literature more of its due because uh, there are some real page turners on the shelves here that are plays and and they're not things that you would encounter in a regular bookstore but if you're a reader or if you're interested in that sort of thing you can find something that you like in a play if you like watching tv i can match you up with uh, a play that might remind you of a tv show that you love or a movie that you love or a, a book that you love 
And I think that we do have already had a lot of people come in who are like, I haven't read a play in 15 years. What can I find here that's that I'm going to enjoy? And are you both taking part in the curation of what's on shelves? Absolutely. So it's interesting, you know, when you're opening up a bookstore, usually you have an opening inventory that is suggested to you. But because we are so niche, with the help of... Um, you know, lists from our publishers and with the help of, you know, the community giving us suggestions of what they'd like to see on the shelves, we essentially handpick every single title that you see on the shelves. And that is out of necessity because the world of play publishing is very unique and it's very different than, than traditional trade publishing. And so we leaned on our own nerdiness and our own passion about Chicago theater. And, and that's where we started was looking at our own shelves and thinking about all the plays we'd seen here in Chicago and all the playwrights we wanted represented and just trying to track down as much of that material as possible. And it's growing and changing all the time to represent. We've got a lot of new Canadian playwrights and a lot of new British playwrights in. Uh, and so also always people come in and say, did you know the Chicago playwright is published under this indie publisher? And so we are always very excited when we get to find uh, more stuff to bring people in and to add to our shelves. You're both theater artists. I would imagine there's a learning curve in opening, figuring out how to run a bookstore slash coffee shop. It was a huge learning curve for the two of us. And to it learn. continues to and, be, And too. continues to be. Um, but I think the thing that has been the most rewarding is all of the help that we've had along the way. Adam and I would not be where we are without you know, the Chicago theater community, the support and creative energy that we've received from our staff. Uh, we have an excellent staff of barista booksellers, people who are so passionate about coffee and theater and who aren't afraid to bring their ideas to the table. Um, our staff is constantly giving us feedback of you know how to better organize like the store or what systems can be in place to you know better you know to craft our recipes and to refine um, and it's truly because of that support and you know the support from the small business community and other coffee shop owners other bookstore owners um, the understudy is through and through a community and family-led effort when um, we would not be here without so many people who've helped us along the way looking ahead and I know you guys are still in your first month thoughts on like what programming are you going to do additional things here yeah looking ahead we plan to program staged readings author events um, artist panels coffee cuppings um, coffee like latte art throwdowns yeah i mean i think that the whole space is designed around celebrating process uh, and you see that on the walls in the hallway that um, Susan Williams uh, did this uh, collage design for us of all torn out script pages. And you can see on the walls there people's highlights, people's notes in the marginalia, thinking things out and doing their process of directing something, of reading something, of uh, acting in something. And that's what we want to celebrate with our events as well is facilitating people in process, whether it be playwrights who are working on a new script or actors who are just starting out in their careers, or maybe a book club for people who are just getting into reading Shakespeare for the first time. And so our space is designed to be super modular so we can say yes to as many things as possible. We're really, really eager to be able to do that. As soon as we get our feet under us a little bit more, the, the possibilities are pretty endless in terms of what we can fit in this space. That was Adam Todd Crawford and Danny Fender. They're the co-owners of The Understudy. The theater bookstore slash coffee shop is located at 5531 North Clark Street in Chicago's Andersonville neighborhood. You can find more information at theunderstudy.shop. You're listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. HBO is over a half century old. It turned 51 earlier this month. An estimated 375 subscribers had access to the channel when it debuted in November of 1972. While there was a lot of excitement around this new offering known as cable, it's unlikely anyone involved in those early days could have predicted the impact HBO would have on pop culture. Many commentators and critics have said we're in a golden age of television. Broadcasters and streaming platforms are investing in bigger names and higher production values. 
While there's some debate as to whether the golden age has already ended, there's widespread consensus that this period of quality programming began with the premiere of The Sopranos in 1999. Nowadays, everybody's got to go to shrinks and counselors. Whatever happened to Gary Cooper? The strong, silent type. That was an American. He wasn't in touch with his feelings. He just did what he had to do. Could I be happier? Yeah. Yeah. Who couldn't? HBO's approach to programming revolutionized what episodic television could be. The book It's Not TV offers a comprehensive deep dive into the history and cultural influence of HBO. It was co-authored by veteran media reporters John Coblin and Felix Gillette. I recently caught up with Coblin to talk about HBO's remarkable evolution over the past five decades. For certain age groups, HBO has just always been cable with such a novel concept in the the mid to late 70s, I have to imagine getting people to, to pay for a subscription to this new product was challenging. Did you dive into that much early in the research process? Uh, completely. I mean, what HBO, its its proposition was, we are going to be a paid subscription service. For decades, people were used to their entertainment being for free with commercials on it, whether it was on radio or whether it was on broadcast television. HBO is trying to do something different, and one of the ways that they entice people to sign up, okay, we're going to give you some Hollywood movies that had just been in theaters a few months earlier, and we're going to give you stuff that you can't watch on network television. You know, if a stand-up comedian does five minutes on The Tonight Show, we're going to let George Carlin do his full routine and say any curse word that he wants right here on our network. And this eventually worked. It took some time for HBO to get its sea legs, but once it did, they were really off to the races. I'm working on a, a different piece about uh, the BBC's 100th anniversary, which is coming up, and I've always admired its approach to programming, so eclectic and, and risk-taking. It was interesting to read about HBO's approach to programming in those early days. Lots of movies, comedy, some sports, and then some in-house created programming. Were some of those early programming decisions made out of necessity to, to fill out a schedule? Yes, indeed. I mean, just look at the name HBO, what it stands for. Home box office. What HBO's earliest programming executives believed was, if there is something that you would have to go out to buy a ticket for, whether that's going to a concert, or going to a comedy show, or going to a boxing match, those are all things you buy tickets for. That's what HBO put on its airwaves, and as well as movies, both licensed movies from the Hollywood studios and made-for-TV original movies as well. So that's really how HBO started to get people in. And those programming efforts, they worked, but the thing that we all really know HBO for, episodic television, they wouldn't get into that in earnest, in a serious way, until the 1990s. Right, and the book really provides a lot of context there. I think, you know, a lot of people, a lot of casual TV watchers, they, they think of Sex and the City, Sopranos, maybe even Oz, the Larry Sanders show. But one of the interesting things I kind of gleaned from the book was, is Dream On really HBO's first scripted show hit? <laughs> you know what? It pretty much was. And that premiered in 1990. It was not a show that HBO owned. It was a licensed show. But Dream On about a book editor living in New York, uh, recently divorced, who goes on a dating and casual sex spree, um, that was a success for HBO. It didn't entirely convince them to get into episodic television, but it also was, fun fact, created by two people named Marta Kaufman and David Crane, who four years after creating Dream On, they created another show for NBC about a group of New Yorkers living in the same apartment building and frequenting the coffee shop downstairs. <laughs> That show, of course, was called Friends. Never heard of it. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, the book dives into the development of a lot of these iconic shows that made HBO what it is. I just wanted to get your opinion. Is the Sunday night time slot on uh, HBO like the holy grail of showrunners today? I, completely. I mean, it's funny. I, right now, these days, the television landscape has never been more competitive. Netflix spends much more than HBO. Apple TV Plus, on a per-show basis, they spend more than anybody. Amazon just dropped a tremendous amount of money, around a billion dollars on this first season of its Lord of the Rings show. There are, a lot of, there are a lot of competitors out there that are tough. And yet, and yet, HBO still remains at this point 
a cut above. We saw it in September at the Emmy Awards when HBO cleaned up. They they won more Emmys than Netflix or Apple TV Plus or Disney, and they won a lot more Emmys, like a dozen more. Um, and one of the things that HBO has been really good at finding shows that come out of left field. You know, Mike White a couple of years ago was talking to an HBO programming executive and proposed an idea. Why don't we do a show in a hotel and it'll be sort of this upstairs, downstairs dramedy. HBO's executives, they were into it and they said, all right, go with it. And it, because it was during the pandemic and it was, it was opening months of COVID, the single location of a hotel seemed really appealing to them because you could keep everybody in sort of a COVID bubble. And then all of a sudden the white Lotus premieres low expectations and that becomes a hit, a huge critical hit for HBO. That then cleaned up at the Emmys a couple months ago. And, of course, the new season just premiered. And I've seen a few screeners. I have to say, it's very good. So, yeah, if you are the average showrunner uh, in Hollywood, there are a lot of good places to go to. But HBO is probably just a little bit above the rest. The book offers a lot of uh, behind the scenes of how the company changed over the years and survived multiple mergers. There's another one happening now. It seems like the AOL and AT&T deals didn't benefit HBO much. Just your opinion, could HBO have reached even greater heights if Time Warner just kept doing its own thing years ago? It probably would have been difficult because with Netflix upending the entire entertainment industry, there aren't going to be very many players in the media world, say, in 10 years. And Time Warner on its own, HBO's parent company, it was, it was not big enough to really survive on its own. It was going to get purchased by somebody. In fact, as they were making a deal with AT&T, the phone company based in Dallas, which has no entertainment experience, and that, mer- and that, uh, that corporate takeover did not go well, Disney actually called up the Time Warner chief executive to inquire, hey, we're interested in you guys. But by that point, it was too late. AT&T, that, that deal, that train was on the tracks already. So would Disney have been a better corporate owner for HBO? Probably. I mean, you never really can tell. These, these mergers and corporate takeovers, there's always a big question mark uh, surrounding them. Discovery, which is HBO's new owner, they bought it from AT&T earlier this year. On the one hand, they do do content. So that's a more natural fit. On the other hand, this new company, Warner Brothers Discovery, they have a debt load of more than $50 billion, which needs to be paid down immediately. If all of a sudden Discovery comes to HBO in a year or two, it's like, yeah, let's look at that programming budget. Maybe you're spending a little too much. Once again, HBO could be in trouble, but they have survived one nearly fatal blow after the next over the last five decades. But HBO's future is uncertain. I feel like for those of us outside the business, you know, the HBO folks who just need to point to posters of Game of Thrones and Sopranos to prove their worth. <laughs> Completely. And that is the reason why AT&T, they really, and they only owned HBO and HBO's parent company, Warner Media for a couple of years. But they went to great lengths to avoid messing with HBO's programming department because they did not want to be known as the company that screwed up HBO. So that was to HBO's benefit. But Discovery, that debt load is huge. So they could go ahead and say, you know what, we have no choice but to affect this programming budget. Or with that debt load being so big, they might have to sell again in a few years. That is a, that is, there's a lot of speculation within the media and entertainment industry that HBO, within a few years, could have yet another new corporate owner. You bring up, like, what could have been if this had happened in, in the book? It also mentions there was this moment where HBO considered, or at least certain executives were looking at buying Netflix. It's true. Uh, in, the, in the mid-2000s, in the mid-aughts, uh, there was a proposal of, hey, look at Netflix, what they're doing with this DVD business. If we combine strengths, our programming with Netflix's incredible approach to DVDs, this could be, make for a very interesting business. But just a few years earlier, when AOL took over HBO's parent company, H- AOL at that point in the early 2000s, they were the internet wonderkins. They could do no wrong. But that was one of the biggest disasters in American corporate history. So five years later, when this is proposal to buy Netflix, the new internet or technological wonderkin, there was a lot of PTSD from the AOL experience. So it was swiftly 
shot down, saying, no way, we are not going to buy Netflix. And of course, Netflix, within a few years, would become a behemoth in Hollywood. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with John Coblin. He's one of the co-authors of the new book, It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO. You cover TV and you've covered HBO over the years. So when uh, you partnered with your co-author, Felix Gillette, and you started the, the research, did you uncover things that you didn't know before as you started working on this? There are so many things that I didn't know. Uh, because HBO's recent history, I've been covering HBO uh, in my day job at the New York Times for the last eight years. There are 42 years of stuff before that. And so yeah, there were some stories I knew, but a lot that I didn't know. For instance, HBO was explicitly programming toward men in the 1980s. And that's sort of a tradition that has been really hard to shake off over the decades. And that's something that was sort of just hiding in plain sight to me. I didn't realize that there were explicit directives we are programming to the man of the household, not the woman of the household. And there are just so many origin stories to so many of these series that I just did not know. There was a 1996 movie called If These Walls Could Talk, starring Demi Moore at the height of her celebrity. And it was about abortion. And that was not a topic that HBO thought would really drive big numbers, especially because men watch HBO for the most part. But this miniseries about abortion scored the biggest ratings ever of an HBO original production and made HBO executives say, huh, well, that's not what we expected. We only programmed this because we just wanted Demi Moore on our airwaves. Maybe we should go out and look for more shows about women. And just a few weeks after that, HBO made a deal to adapt a series of a book uh, consisting of a series of columns by Candace Bushnell called Sex in the City. Right, yeah. And then you also, you make sure in the book to kind of highlight some of the, the women programming executives that, that found success, despite maybe the, the culture there not being um, as welcoming as it might be today. Completely. Um, HBO has had a rich history of strong women executives within its programming department. And yet, like at so many media companies in the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s, those women really made it to the top. You know, they, there was a tradition where you get higher and higher in the corporate hierarchy, and then your career would either stall right there or you just get quietly pushed out. And that is a theme that we really interrogate in our book. So I think I read something that uh, you said your favorite HBO show was The Sopranos. And so I'm not going to ask you what your favorite HBO show is, but wanted to get your thoughts on maybe what's like a hidden gem of an HBO program that you felt never got its due. It's a show that uh, was canceled after one season, and then it got a second season a few years ago, and it also didn't do well. But the comeback starring Lisa Kudrow, <laughs> okay. it was Lisa Kudrow's first post Friends starring appearance, and she co-created the show with Michael Patrick King, who was hugely influential with Sex in the City. It's just such a great show. It's brilliant. Both seasons of it are really brilliant. And it's a show that, if you've watched it, you're probably a huge fan of it, but most people haven't. It's on HBO Max. I really recommend checking it out. I remember watching the, uh, the first season, and I thought it was hilarious, and I felt like I was using the term cringe before, like, you know, now everyone says things are cringy, but that was like my first experience with something that was like cringe funny. <laughs> Completely. Right. So definitely, yeah, I got to watch season two of the comeback. Well, John, I got to say, I really enjoyed the book. I read it pretty quickly. One of the best compliments I guess I could give was I was reading it on the couch and I got up to do something and then my wife picked it up and she started reading it from the beginning and didn't want to give it back. So that's probably one of the, the best compliments I could give it. Uh, John, thanks so much for making time to talk with me. Uh, that is a great endorsement and thank you so much for having me on. That was John Coblin. He's the co-author of It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO. It's available everywhere books are sold. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section, but remember you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. 
My name's Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Art Section. Until then, have a great week. Hope you had a nice Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening.